Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, folks, Renee here. I'm really excited for you to hear Alana's interview with Lucy Yu of You and Me Books. This interview was recorded just a few days before You and Me Books experienced a devastating fire. I want to bring your attention to their GoFundMe. They have raised over twice their goal, but the deal with a bookstore and water damage is they lost most of their inventory, much of their equipment. They probably will not be able to open for at least another year. So even though they have raised twice their goal, they've raised at the moment of recording this over $300,000, I can tell you from experience, that's not going to cover a year closed. They want to make sure their employees get paid. They want to make sure that, you know, all of the events that they had planned for the next year are compensated as well as possible, temporary space, operating costs, you know, new contracts, those sorts of things. This is devastating. And it is, you can hear the passion that Lucy has for this business in the upcoming interview. So if you have an extra $5, it can go a long, long way to help Lucy and You and Me Bookstore, which is a remarkable historical bookstore. I can't wait for you to hear this interview. And I hope that it moves the needle on your ability and inspiration to throw a couple dollars their way, if you can. Thank you so much. At Feminist Book Club, one of our favorite genres of nonfiction is learning the stories of the women behind famous or powerful men. So I am thrilled to share a brand new book with you. Parachute Women, Marianne Faithful, Marsha Hunt, Bianca Jagger, Anita Pallenberg, and The Women Behind the Rolling Stones by Elizabeth Winder. These four women worked tirelessly behind the scenes to help shape and curate the image of the Rolling Stones. This book is a beautiful, comprehensive group portrait of four women who were marginalized by the male-dominated rock world of the late 60s and early 70s, finally giving the women the credit they deserve for the impact on one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. Even if you're not a Rolling Stones fan, you'll be blown away by the audacity of these women, and you'll love the rock and roll stories Elizabeth Winder shares in these pages. Perfect for readers of Girls Like Us, Parachute Women by Elizabeth Winder is out now from Hachette Books. Thank you for sponsoring today's podcast. Hey, everyone. This is Taylor from the Feminist Book Club. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. I'm here with Paula Rogers to talk about the comic blind data. I know we all have very much more stories, success stories, stories in general, stories for days around online dating and dating apps. So I'm here to talk to Paula today about her comic blind data. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about this, this comic and this project. So I started Blind Data because, like many people, I had been on the apps for many years, and it just kept making me feel really bad. And I felt like that wasn't part of the conversation. Like, it wasn't even about 
that I wasn't finding a partner. The apps weren't, you know, successfully delivering me the service that they promised. It was more that the, the process itself seemed to, I don't know, hurt my soul. <laughs> and I felt like people were individually experiencing this, but collectively not speaking about it because there was this resignation that like, well, this is the only way to meet people now, but that's a very recent change in how we meet people. It doesn't have to be this way. And I, I wanted to give voice to my own experience that it was like hurtful and say like, Hey, maybe this isn't working for everyone. And then also kind of see if we can shift this assumption that this is the only option that we have now as modern people, especially if it's painful and, and not, not really working the way that we would like it to. So I can talk a little bit too about just like the premise of the comic, because like you mentioned, there are so many dating horror stories out there, you know, and they range from kind of funny to like truly frightening. And I have certainly experienced both sides of those stories. And I feel like the idea that some of these online dates you know, turn out quite harrowing is, is sadly nothing new. So I wanted to make a comic that was different and that was only about first dates. People that I only spent maybe two or three hours of my life with, you know, on a Wednesday night, 10 years ago, never saw them again. Nothing particularly terrible happened, but they still stick with me. Over a decade later, I'm still thinking about them, even though I never talked to these people again. And to me, that was indicative of the fact that these experiences that are mitigated by technology are very meaningful to us. And I wanted to push back on the kind of like casual numbers game approach of swiping through a bunch of people and doesn't it doesn't really matter. To say that, like, no, even a first date, you know, even one one drink with someone can really affect us. And I think we should take maybe take the process a little more seriously because even something it leaves a mark, even just this one interaction. Yes. And I loved how you brought in a lot of research. You mentioned about like it's a numbers game and it is, but not in the way we think about it. Like I was reading the comic and this totally reminds me of that one episode of Black Mirror, the only episode I've ever watched. But I just really thought about the episode of Black Mirror where like the social media ratings. And that's kind of what the what that reminded me of when you talked about collaborative filtering that the apps use. And uh, can you talk a little bit more about collaborative filtering and explain what that is for listeners? Totally. Yeah. So the latest installment of the comic is called Art. And it's the one I spent over a month researching and sometimes looking at the data that the apps themselves have provided about how their algorithms work. In the last few years, I'd say like post-pandemic, a lot of the apps have taken that information away from the public. So that's interesting in itself. But what I was able to find through studies and through, like I said, the app's own blogs was that a lot of apps use something called collaborative filtering. 
And I'm pretty confident that I can say a lot of them or most of them because something I also found that I personally wasn't aware of is that most dating apps are actually owned by one giant company corporation called Match Group. And so although the apps have different like flavors or or marketing to different types of people or different demographics, a lot of them work in a very similar way. And so collaborative filtering is the same kind of principle that is used by services like Spotify or Netflix to say that like, hey, you watched, you know, Succession. I hear other people who have watched Succession like this other show. And so it's using kind of a group consensus to say like, you listen to this type of music. So do other people who listen to this band, like band A. So why don't you check out band A? Because a lot of people who listen to band B, like band A and things like that, which is, you know, I think a reasonably interesting way of approaching media, but when it's applied to people, it becomes really dark. And I think your reference to Black Mirror is incredibly apt because what I found is that instead of like collaborative filtering, weighing like, oh, Paula listened to this song or she watched this show or this movie, it's now about who I swipe on or who swipes on me. And all of that is data that is fed into the app to to literally rank us as more desirable than another user based on how many people swipe on us, swipe left or swipe right. It tracks things like how many people message you their phone numbers. It can read your messages and it knows that because it reads that as a success that you have successfully gotten someone to meet you in real life. If you link your social media accounts it knows how active you are on social media, your engagement on your Instagram or your TikTok or whatever, and that feeds into your score. And people with that the algorithm then says, okay, you know, they have a lot of followers on Instagram. They get a lot of engagement. They get a lot of phone numbers. They have a really high score. So their swipes then also tend to mean more. So if someone who is really popular on social media swipes no on me, on my profile, that's going to dock me a lot more points than someone who maybe is not popular on social media. Swiping yes will raise my score, but it won't be an equivalent raise to the demotion of a very popular person swiping no on me. And I find this rather horrifying (laughs) because it is so cold. It's so inhuman. And I I really can't think of a place where we want to be seen for all of our complexities and facets as humans more than than dating and, and matters of compatibility. But it just comes down to these snap judgments by people who have power that's determined by algorithms and engagements on platforms that not everyone likes. Like just going off my example, I'm not very active on social media. So someone who who also is not like super online swiping yes on me is actually someone who's probably quite compatible with me. And yet that bump on my profile is going to be outweighed by someone who's like an influencer swiping no on me. When like 
yeah, I don't have anything in common with an influencer. I'm fine with that. But that person moves me lower and lower in the, in the ranks of the algorithm. And it doesn't reflect our compatibility on it. And more disturbingly, it condenses our worth into this like popularity contest, essentially. Right. And like, it's with like the rise of AI and there's people really turning to dating apps, especially like during the pandemic and kind of like still like looking to them because like things were closed and that's the way you have to meet people. And it's like really, it's weird because we are searching for human connection in a way that takes all of the humanity out of that experience by using the algorithms and like formulas and the popularity contest. It like takes all of the humanity out of like our process of really searching for human connection. And so I know, like you mentioned, like feelings a lot of like guilt, shame and resentment coming up with all of that, especially being like, matched with someone who you have maybe have a lot of common with but there's no really like chemistry or attraction there how can we like or how do you personally kind of navigate through those feelings and how can we kind of gauge chemistry better in a virtual world that's such a good question I think it's it's inevitable, and that's a word that I love and that I use in the latest issue of the comic. And that's the the promise of of an app on the surface is like you could meet people who are outside of your your bubble. And what a great thing! Like we should be doing that. We should be getting engaging with people in different perspectives. And and I find also just like anecdotally and the research that I've read on what makes a happy relationship is that, you know, compatibility is deeper than we like the same movies, we like the same music. Sometimes you can be quite opposite on the surface, but your values are where you align. And that makes a very strong connection because it's about two people who are are supporting the individual individualization of the other that's that's what you want that's beautiful and that can come from places you and and segments of the population that you might not expect or be exposed to in our little bubbles and so i think that the promise of dating apps to do that is wonderful what what ends up happening is quite the opposite through what i described which collaborate collaborative filtering and how it it amplifies the kind of biases and toxicity that we see around, you know, demographics of people, around race, around age, around gender. And it, and it's really disturbing. And so I think when we are going, if we choose to continue to be online, I think being aware that you are not seeing everything that's out there. I, I know that I felt this sense in apps that is this really the dating pool? Is this everyone? I guess this is what I deserve. I guess this is who, who the app, <laughs> the powers that be society thinks that I belong with this type of person. And, and I think it's important to remember that 
that no, like that's just one lens through the the data that that you represent to the app. You're not a a person. It's not looking. It's not reading your profiles for like, you know, Taylor has a great sense of humor. Like no, <laughs> you know, it sees you as data, and so I think it's. If you're dissatisfied with the options and the matches that you're getting from apps to not personalize that. And that's one of the things that I wanted to do is that showing people how lazy and toxic the algorithms can be can depersonalize the pain that comes from being in the bottom tiers of an app. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if that answered your question, but that's, I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, no, it definitely did. And I love how you kind of spoke to like people taking it personal and the pain they experience from like being the bottom tier. Cause like all I've seen plenty of research and you mentioned it in the latest installment of the comic that like black women are on the low, lowest of the lowest totem pole for dating. Like they are. By the numbers, they are seen as so undesirable. And that's one reason why I don't like to engage in the apps very much, because I feel like that is exacerbated through the apps. But definitely, 100%. yeah, identity and all of that playing a role in how you are experiencing online dating. Yes, the, the comic has the the graph broken down. It's from... Okay, Cupid itself, it's from 2014, but they haven't bothered to update it beyond just taking it off of their website. So you have to find this data through other projects or through cached places on the internet. There's a really amazing project called Monster Match that goes into it. I highly recommend checking out, but it, it's exactly what you said. It's like the collaborative sheltering is, is codifying racism, sexism, ageism ableism like it goes on it's it's not just that the algorithm reflects toxic impulses it actually amplifies those biases by filtering which profiles are even seen so you literally become invisible on the app which is it's incredibly dehumanizing as if we're not already invisible enough (laughs) politically in the world (laughs) right right yeah, exactly. I mean, the data, unfortunately, is quite bleak. There's another study from 2018 that I include in the comic where it shows the same thing as the 2014 study. And this is a, a study that was done by a science advances journal. So it was not connected to the dating apps at all. And it, it just unlike from my own personal identity, like you can see the desirability of women just completely plummeting after the age of 25. Like, it's like the downward slope is like dangerous if you are on a skateboard. It's like so extreme. And it's like, wow, that's terrible to see that data. But it's also like weirdly validating as like a woman who's over 35, you know, oh my gosh, how dare I want to date? And then seeing like, oh, okay, well, it's not, it's not just my experience. It really is. It really is hard out there. <laughs> I really am seen as less than desirable. Okay. Right. And it's not just limited to Leonardo DiCaprio. Like it is across the board. Totally. Um, So how long have you been creating comics and what led you to choose like comics as a creative medium? 
Yeah, so I originally went to art school many years ago to learn the art of comics and graphic novels and illustrated storytelling. I became more enamored with writing than than illustrating, and eventually, like you know, that was the sh- that's been the focus of my career for the last twenty years. I've been a writer, and in various places, I'm currently working in video games. But I've always loved art. I've always loved uh, comics, storytelling. It's so powerful. It's so immediate, and it connects on this incredibly deep and I think elemental level. And you can mix data like I'm talking about this like truly like horrifying stuff with little jokes and little cute cartoons little cute drawings and I love that for the messages that I'm talking about and the stories that I'm telling are like you know I lived them they're not really happy stories but I can draw I can draw cute things one of the choices that I made visually in the comic was that I would draw all of the the men that I date and the people that feature the the people I date in the comic as cats because I wanted to preserve the anonymity of of the people. Also, it was like some of these people I've never seen since. It's been several years, so I don't know if I accurately remember them or not. Also, it it just added a bit of like levity and novelty to it and and I wanted it to be less about like I'm not out here to, to write these stories to say this one guy that I dated can you believe him this is not like a West Elm Caleb type situation I, I really wanted it to the focus to be on the apps and the system the process itself more than the person and it's just a lot more fun I was like man do I really just want to draw like dudes over and over again no i'd much rather draw cats wearing clothes so that it made the project more fun for me and hopefully more palatable for for readers i thought that was super cute how they were all cats and like it's like how i kind of saw it was again like to protect their anonymity but also just to like more so make it about like the story itself and adding like personality to the story itself rather than just like oh like you said like oh I could draw like a bunch of dudes but like this is like more fun so it definitely added a lot of like personality to the comic so I love that thank you thank also like with art I the story is about someone that I am not attracted to and I felt I was really in a bind and I was drawing this because I was like, whatever decision I make, if I draw this cat person, tall, short, bigger, thinner, people are going to think I'm saying that that attribute is not attractive. And that's not what I want to do because, you know, that's not one, that's just not true. Like people are beautiful in many different forms. And that's certainly been my experience. And that's the message I want out there. But how do I avoid that in a visual medium when I'm saying that I'm not attracted to this person? So I made the choice for art to depict that particular cat man in a very cartoony style that is much less realistic. Like I think the other cat men, they resemble humans. You could probably see the human that they look like if you saw the person. But hopefully with art, it's a more just like, that's just like a cute like cartoon cat. Right. And I just, I love that too, because it is a choice to kind of like make sure you are 
not promoting like harmful stereotypes about just because you might not find that one person attractive doesn't mean like those attributes or characteristics that that person may have isn't attractive. So I like that choice as well. Thank so you. this I'm was so glad. great. Thank you so much, Paula. And thank you for putting your stories and your art into the world to talk about. I feel like a lot of women can connect on this issue around dating apps. I know I definitely did. So before we kind of wrap up, I did want to ask, where can people find you on the internet and find your work? Well, thank you so much. I Every time someone says they like the comic, I say thank you. And also, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry that you could relate to these like sad experiences. And I, I want better for all of us. That's why I'm doing this. I'm putting my like quite painful stories out there. But I really appreciate what you said and, and that you had me on the show. And if it connects with people and gives voice to some some pain and makes people feel less alone... That's all I, I want. So if your listeners are interested, they can check out the comic at blinddatacomic.com. Subscribing to the newsletter really helps me out a lot. If that's something that people want to do, and I, I only send out mail when there's a new issue. There's a few more coming up over the next few months. It's an ongoing series. And then after that, you can find me at paulacreative.com. And there are links on blinddata.com to my Twitter and my Instagram. Awesome. I'll make sure to link those in the show notes. And thank you again so much, Paula, for being on the show. Uh, and everybody go check out blinddatacomic.com and look at all of the misadventures in the dating app world. Thank y'all so much. Hi, everyone. My name is Jordy. My pronouns are she, her. And I'm joined today by Knox, a fellow contributor to Talk About Stoneblind by Natalie Haynes. This novel is a retelling of the classic Greek mythology story of Medusa. However, instead of feeding into the narrative that we have been told for centuries that paints Medusa as a monster and Perseus as a hero, this book flips the script and we are told the true story of how Medusa became the Gorgon we know today. I do want to let you know that this story discusses multiple sexual assaults and some of our conversation may discuss this topic. So, Knox, first off, are you a fan of Greek mythology and how did you feel reading this book? I, I am definitely a fan of Greek mythology. We were talking about this before we started recording. When I was in fourth grade, I got a cat and I named her Artemis because Artemis was my favorite goddess to read about at the time. And my... My cat I have right now, when I got her, I originally wanted to name her Persephone because I just, I love Greek mythology so much. So I'm definitely a fan. I definitely like learning more about mythology and reading this. I've been a little bit weary, I think, of trying out Greek mythology retellings. I love retellings so much, but I don't know why I was just like, that's a big like thing to pick up and I think it's because I keep hearing so much about all these Greek mythology retellings like Circe and Song of Achilles and things like that that was a little bit scared to pick them up but this was my first Natalie Haynes book and I, I love this it was a five star I finished it and I would have finished it in one day if I didn't have to socialize with my with my partner <laughs> bless him he knows I love him but at the same time I'm like I need you to just like I, I'm reading a book right now and he understands where I'm like, no, 
no, be be loving. But this book was so good. I didn't want to put it down. Yes, I agree. I myself, prior to this book, was not a Greek mythology fan. I, in high school, wanted to get into it. My friends loved it. My sister is really into it. And I think for me, just the number of stories that are out there, all of the characters' names that for me were impossible to pronounce, and so it was hard to picture everything, and especially picturing all of these creatures and whatnot, it was just all too intimidating for me. And so I felt like if I tried to pick up a retelling, I would just have no idea what was going on. Like I would have no idea what these people were, what their stories were, what their backgrounds. And I felt like it would just make me feel stupid. But I saw this book sitting on the shelf and I was like, you know, I really want to give it another try. I've been hearing stuff about Medusa recently. This book looks good. Why not? And I listened to the audiobook with it, which helped a lot with the pronunciations and stuff like that. But I have to say, from the first page, I was hooked. Like, Natalie Haynes' writing style, how she explained everything. Like, I felt like I didn't need to know anything prior to reading this. And I still got it. And another thing that really helped is, like, before the story starts, there's a list of character names. And they say, like, who they are, who they're in relation to. And that really helped while I was reading because I could just flip back every time I didn't remember what was going on. And I just had a blast reading this book. Yeah, I definitely, I, I listened to audiobook, but I didn't have like a physical copy or anything. So that cast of characters entered my brain and then immediately checked out. And I forgot it was there until I'm at her potential. I'm like, who is this? And even for me, someone who's loved Greek mythology for such a long time, I had no idea how to pronounce half these names. I knew Perseus. I knew Medusa. I knew Cassiopeia and I knew Andromeda and that was, that was it. And like the names of like Hermes and Athena and Zeus. But I, it's also because I feel like when you're just entering Greek mythology, there are so many different pronunciations that people might have. Like I say Hecate and I saw some people just say Hecate or Hecate and things like that. And I'm like, I don't know which one's the right one. You know, it's there's a lot of spellings and different stories. And there's some stories where I've heard Medusa isn't originally more human looking. She always looked like that. There's some where I've heard similar to this story. I've heard there's some where after she dies, the what's the 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 like the head of Medusa or the the no, wings? No, okay, so it's the what's the word? The pegs. Oh, the Pegasus. Pegasus. Pegasus is born from when Perseus decapitates Medusa and he just springs forward out of her neck because Poseidon is the father of horses and that's why Pegasus can fly. And so that's a story I've heard. There's so many different stories I've heard about all this some um, where Medusa is like the priestess to Athena, kind of like the girl at the end. I don't remember her name. I don't remember her name either. Stereophonite. Like, yeah, it, she was on there for like two pages. Yeah. But, <laughs> but yeah, briefly mentioned a priestess. And like you were saying, I feel like since I didn't really know a whole lot going into this, it made it easier because I wasn't trying to connect stories that I had previously known. 
But yeah, what were some of the moments throughout this book that kind of stood out to you in a good way or in a bad way? Oh God, there were so many. The different times that we had characters who weren't like, they were integral in their own ways. So when the, the Olive Grove is speaking was so cool. It was so interesting to hear the Olive Grove talk about, you know, why Athens loves them and why Athens chose them or why the gods chose them and things like that. And when you have the snakes, the herpeta, when I finally looked back, I was like, okay, I just, I'm just going to listen to the cast of characters over again. Who are you? But it was so cool, especially the ways that they were talking and they were just like, we try to save her, but we didn't know, like, it's not our fault. Please don't, you know, be upset with us. And then I was wondering how are the snakes telling us the story if Medusa is gone? And then the next chapter, you find out how the snakes are telling you the story. That part where the Gorgonion, Gorgonion, I think that sounds right to me. Gor- yeah. Gorgonion, Gorgonion. The Gorgonions. Yeah. But when they say it's like, yes, I'm sure you figure out who I am. I am Medusa's head, you know, and the part where they're just like, I don't care about protecting people anymore. Like, let me be the monster that I've become because of this. All the conversations where Poseidon's trying to tell Medusa, he's like, well, you know what beauty is. You know your sisters are monsters. You know they're not beautiful. She's like, no, he goes, well, prove it. She goes, you can't. What makes you, what makes you get to say what's beautiful? And he think, he's like, you're being dense. And she's like, no, I'm not. Yeah, in that moment, Medusa really kind of showed him up essentially intellectually. And I think that leads into one of the moments that stood out to me. And what I didn't realize going into this book is that every chapter is almost from somebody else's perspective of the whole story. So you get a whole background of like how Medusa came into the world, her life with her sisters. You figure out why Perseus is going on this journey to get a Gorgon's head. You figure out, you know, like you were saying about the olive groves, like, why Athena needed to get sway with the gods for certain things and whatnot. But in that moment with Poseidon and Medusa, this is, I don't know if this is a spoiler. I don't know if this is like in the original tellings of how the story went, but she's at this temple for Athena and Poseidon approaches her. And this is like the first time that she was able to wander out by herself And he is talking to her, trying to seduce her, and it's just not working. And, you know, he starts trying to do stuff. And there's these girls who are outside the temple. And he's like, you know, you can't think you're the same type of beauty as those girls, because those girls are basically nothing. She's like, no, they're beautiful, and lists, like, all the reasons why they have beauty, which is more than just what they're seeing on the outside. And, like, because of this, Poseidon poses, you know, well... Like, I could either have you or I could go do what I want with them. And that's when everything kind of takes a turn. But yeah, just like getting kind of like the backstory for what happened to Medusa. And then Athena trying to take her revenge because it happened in her temple. That just, I say, like spoke volumes for Medusa's character that I don't know if we got like in the original Medusa story. So instead of painting Medusa as this monster that we're supposed to believe that she is she was really a defender of humanity and I thought that was powerful and you kind of see throughout the story 
how Medusa defends, you know, women just throughout everything. And it's like, no, like her sisters are painted out to be monsters. And even though they're not beautiful in the traditional sense, like there's more to them that makes them beautiful, like their love, their protection and things like that. So I I loved hearing about all of that. And like you said, the chapter with the snakes, I thought that was such a genius part of the story, especially where it was put. Because this is like leading up to when Medusa gets beheaded. And you kind of hear from all of their perspectives, like what's happening and the anticipation of what's to come. And I was just blown away by that. I love that. Yeah, there were a couple of things that were just so, so well done. The fact that each one is a different third person perspective, but also it's very focused on the certain people. But even in the parts where we're focusing on male characters, it's still being told from a female character's point of view. So all the chapters are from a woman's point of view and not centering the men who are usually centered in these tales. Another thing is, so you asked if it was a spoiler. That's the thing about Greek mythology is there's so many different ways to tell the story. So like I said, some say that she was a priestess of Athena. I've never heard the part about like Poseidon giving her a choice. I think that might have been just Natalie Haynes, you know, making, you know, it's a story and she's writing it. But there are so many different things that people say about Medusa. And I've heard in some cases it's Athena trying to protect Medusa. Like, I'm so sorry, you're my priestess. I'm so sorry I wasn't there. I'm going to do this to protect you so that no man can ever touch you again, you know, without without you wanting him to. You can turn anyone to stone who dares try to mess with you. And in so many stories about Greek mythology, it's just because the gods are petty and revenge and they don't care about mortals, which they very much leaned into in this story, which I kind of like that they like showed that part where it's just oh you slide my my uncle slighted me so i'm going to punish you because so much greek mythology is the god's misdirected anger just so so much of it i also like andromeda getting to speak because so many times it's just oh yeah either her mom says she was more beautiful than you know the nereids and so naira there's nereids and there's naiads, and I don't remember which one's the ocean one, but there's there's so much more. She's so much more beautiful than them. And you never get to see how she feels about it. She's very much like an off-screen damsel in distress in her own story. And then the horror at the wedding when Perseus and just how callous he is. God, I hate Perseus. Yes, I so I loved how in the story we had there was like a different narrator and I'm forgetting whose voice it was, but like essentially the person telling this entire story would come in and would kind of do like a gut check and they would say, oh, are you feeling sympathy for Perseus because he's just trying to help his mom not marry a king? And so like that justifies getting the head of somebody he doesn't even know and like they would leave and then they would come back and like check you about like what Zeus was doing or whatever. And I really appreciate that because like I keep saying before I went into this book, it's like the stuff that I learned back in high school, you know, they paint these gods as heroes and me, like I didn't even dig into it because it didn't make any sense to me back then. But it's like, yeah, if we just take 
a little bit of a closer look and maybe dig one inch below the surface, you see how everything is just terrible. Like none of the actions that they did were heroic. They're very deceitful, very self-serving. And I like how all of it kind of came to light in this book and kind of put a new perspective on everything that I had recently learned. I think the part that really got me there was, again, the snakes chapter. Snakes had the best chapter. Just just going to say it. Snakes had the best chapter. And theirs was right before the Gorgoneon, who's the overarching narrator, reveals who they are. But the snakes, when they have that argument, they're like, she was asleep. And they go, no, she woke up right before he killed her. And they're like, why did she open her eyes? Because she wouldn't kill him. And that part broke me. I don't take no Medusa. Like, I know how this story ends. But just the part where they're like, it's like, oh, well, at least she was asleep when it happened. No, sweetie, she wasn't. She woke up, but she knew she wasn't going to do anything to save herself because she wouldn't hurt somebody else because of it. And it hurt so much because, you know, her sisters, Eurali and Stano, were guarding her and protecting her. And to find out that he, Perseus, had tricked them into leaving the cave for a little bit so he could go do this. I was just like, oh, it was it was heart wrenching. And then the portrayal of, you know, their agony and grief after it was, again, heart wrenching. And one thing that I found surprising was So after Perseus gets Medusa's head, he kind of goes around and then he uses the head, I want to say willy-nilly, whenever he likes, just to like turn anyone he doesn't like into stone whenever it's convenient for him. And it's like this woman, Medusa, just, she can't get a break. Like no matter what's happening to her in life, like she's being used at every turn. But yeah. Oh, the thing that surprised me, that's what I was getting at. The thing that surprised me at the end was there's this scene going on and this creature comes up from the water and we find out that it was Medusa's mother and they lock eyes on each other for a split second and obviously it doesn't turn out well. I think it's Cato. Is Cato the mom's name? Yeah. But in that moment, both of them realize who each other are and that was just another dagger to the heart. Especially because they set it up earlier in the story. Like, the author does such a good stuff. Stu- just she does such a good job at setting things up earlier. So the point where they're like, I thought where she goes, I thought you guys were my mother. And they're like, no, we're your sisters. And she goes, well, who's my mom? You know, where is she? And they're like, she's, you know, in the ocean. You're probably never going to meet her. And she has these days where she's wondering, well, what would it be like to have a mom? You know, what? What would my mother love me? Would my mother know who I am? Does she remember me? You know, and having Medusa want to know her mom. And the one time where she gets to see her mom, it kills her. And then finding out Poseidon did it on purpose. I was so, it was just so heartbreaking. Like the things that would happen to Medusa. And then I was like, well, maybe she did finally get a break at the very end of the story. Kind of, but not really because she ended up in the sea. Yeah, I was a little bit upset about that. But at the same time, I was like, to me, grief mythology is all about tragedy. So in a sense, it kind of seemed fitting. But I was also annoyed with Athena because 
at the end, she takes back Medusa's head and puts it on her breastplate. And the scene that we were talking about earlier, where Athena goes to visit her one of her temples, and this young priestess comes out and sees her standing there. Athena turns around, and the priestess sees Medusa's head and turns to stone. And Athena's just like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that was going to happen. And it's like, what are you talking about? Like, what is happening? What did you, what did you think about the end ends with Athena and Medusa? Oh, goddess of wisdom. Didn't think that the head that turns people into stone would possibly turn someone into stone. Well, it's like, can't you control it? Do you think she would have had her eyes bandaged if she could just control it? Like, just one moment of, of thinking things through. And then the part where she doesn't have this conversation until centuries have passed and the priestess has been gone for centuries is I get that time means nothing to immortals and I think the author again did a really good job at like conveying that but that part where it's like oh oh I thought that fire was for me no it's not for you it's just like oh well is that blasphemy like should I be upset about this maybe be upset the fact that you just don't care about people, but again, they're gods, but the gods don't even care about each other in this story, really. But your actual question, though, what I thought about the very end, I, so I liked the ending, and I think that's the best thing I can say, just because it's hard going into the story, and you want a happy ending, but you just know it's not going to happen, I think. Medusa getting to spoilers, even though we've been kind of having a little bit of spoilers throughout this. I think Medusa turning Athena into a statue was one of the best endings that could have happened. I mean, obviously, Poseidon getting turned into a statue would have been amazing. But even the part where she ends up in the sea at the end, as much as that bothered me, I also think it was good for her in a way simply because she loved the sea so much before Poseidon came and her sisters were so upset that you know they wanted her to be buried near the sea that she loved but they also wouldn't let Poseidon near her and so they went as far away from him as possible and that really hurt them in the end she was in the sea again but she was surrounded by solid rock because I guess the shield got wrapped up in like natural materials. And so, right. And so then it all became stone. So did she end up in the sea again in Poseidon? The sea is his thing. Yeah. But at the same time, he can never touch her again. So it was, I like the ending. I'm not going to say I'm happy about it because I don't think it's any you can be happy about. I think you, you just be like, that's unfortunately probably the best case scenario that could have happened for her. Yeah, I think it's also interesting because, you know, as soon as Athena takes Medusa's head for her own and right after the chapter where Athena mistakenly turned somebody into a stone without realizing she would could do that, Med- or sorry, Athena is talking to Medusa as if they're equals and partners and they have this like really strong connection, like they're confidants. And I thought that was interesting Because I was like, you know, you started off by essentially cursing this woman because of something that she couldn't even control. And now you're like, it felt like Athena was 
in cahoots with Medusa, but Medusa was not like siding with Athena for anything. And it was almost kind of like I felt Medusa was putting Athena out of her misery. Like Athena had this longing to kind of just go home, like what she was saying. And Medusa said, you know, I know a way that could like solve your problems. And then Medusa turned Athena to stone. And then we find out that Medusa's head gets brought back to the ocean and she is eternally at the bottom of the ocean. And it it felt like a very poetic ending to me. And it felt like, I don't want to say like I felt satisfied at the end of the book, but it felt like a very whole and complete ending, like a perfect ending for such a great book. Yeah, it's the best ending that could possibly, like, it's the ending that made perfect sense for the story that was given. I did think Medusa was actually, or the Gorgoneon, because they do, like, the Gorgoneon makes, like, very strong attempts to, like, separate herself, pun, not pun, not meant to, but to separate herself from Medusa. She's like, no, Medusa is who I was before Perseus. You know, Medusa was caring and loved people and saw beauty and everything. I'm full of spite and anger and hatred, and I do not care who I hurt. But at the end, and I only think this, I think, because I was listening to the audiobook, it did seem like even the Gorgoneon actually ended up caring about Athena or Athene in this and wanting, it's like, because she sounded calm and like, you know, there's no way that you can go back from this if I help you. And compared to the Gorgoneon originally, who was just like, I could have closed my eyes. I agree. It did kind of feel like while like while I still think they weren't necessarily on like the same team, it did feel like Medusa was final or the Gorgoneon was finally sympathetic enough to kind of put Athena out of her misery, essentially. And I think that just goes back to show Medusa's character like, from the beginning of the book and throughout the whole story. And so what would you rate this book? I think you said it earlier, but any final thoughts and what would you give this? This book, I think, was the, I just think it was a really great retelling. And it's not a book to read if you want to be happy. After, I'm just going to say that straight out, if, you, if you're looking for a book, it's like, oh, I love Greek mythology, you know, and I really need something, you know, to just, if you don't mind being, completely obliterated at the end then i definitely recommend picking it up but if you're not in the headspace for a very heavy and emotional book this might not be the perfect time to pick it up it's a beautiful story the writing is very lyrical and i the way the characters are developed is just great and i did like at the end that you could still see like there's still medusa in the gorgoneon as much as they wish to say different and i gave it five stars i was like there's no notes this is beautiful. You know, I'm going to pick up everything else I can by this author. I might actually start reading other authors' Greek mythology retellings. I am no longer scared. Well, I'm scared of the emotions I'm going to feel while reading them, but I'm very excited for those. It was a beautiful story, and I loved it, and I loved the idea that what makes something beautiful and what makes something lovable and what makes something a monster, I just found that all very affirming in a way, but I loved it. Yes, I will say I kind of love the theme of 
you know, man doesn't get to determine what is beautiful and when it's beautiful and how it gets to display beauty. I've also recently gotten into really witchy books. And in one of the books that I read, they were talking about how, you know, people will just label women a certain thing if they don't understand it. Or if they're, you know, becoming too powerful or if they're doing things that men cannot. And, you know, in this book, it was like they'll label the person a witch. And in this one, it's like they'll label you a monster. But, you know, they don't get to decide who you are. And I love that. This also inspired me to pick up more Greek mythology retellings. I don't feel as intimidated anymore. I felt smart enough to read it. And there's another book that's coming out soon called Medusa's Sisters by Lauren J.A. Bear. And I'm excited to also get into that retelling. So I'm excited to see kind of the similarities and differences between these two stories. I also gave it a five stars. So if any of you guys have read this book, we would love to hear your thoughts and what you gave it. And if you have any other Greek mythology retelling recommendations, I'm open for it. I'm definitely picking up that Medusa Sisters one. I did not know about that one. I was going to say, so now you're going to buddy read the Hercules book with me, please? Because that sounds so interesting. Yes, share what that one is about. So it's called Her. It's coming out this year. It's not by Natalie Haynes. It is by a different author that I'm totally not looking up right now as we have this conversation. Okay, I found it. It comes out September 5th, 2023. It is by Phoenicia Rogerson. And it's the cover has H-E-R-C and in between it's hero, husband, father, villain, monster. And so it focuses on his mother, his first friend who was more than friends, his wife, who Megara, who people know from the Disney movie is not the same in the myth whatsoever, that relationship. And the person who oversaw his trials. So it doesn't seem like it's all the main characters that we focus on are women, but it's all the characters who kind of got reduced to sidecaps during the mainstream 12 Labors of Hercules stories. And so you get to hear all of their stories about Hercules and what happened to them throughout his whole, you know, heroic, quote unquote, journey and eventual godliness, I'm assuming. I am a little sad it's not going to focus on Hebe, who is also one of my favorite goddesses, and that ends up being his wife on Olympus. But I'm very excited for this. As am I. I honestly feel like I'm about to find my new niche. I feel like I go through cycles of what books I'm interested in, and I think I'm about to read, like binge read, these Greek mythology retellings. All right, well, thank you everyone for listening. Happy reading. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature. Creature.